Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Hammond News series, posted March 19, 2018, titled Dinosaur Death, Water or Fire, featuring John Perry of Stated Clearly. Welcome to Apologia and another edition of Ham and Egg News, where we react to Ken Ham reacting to things. Thanks to Shannon Q and Vice Rhino for taking care of things while I was off, and to everyone who sent well wishes. But I'm back. Let's see what the crew is up to. As we get underway, Georgia is not here. She's not here. I think it stinks that she didn't come in. <laughs> so I have had a skunk to represent Georgia. Ugh, okay, I rush into coming back. I need someone else to deal with these guys. Hey, Paul. John Perry. Am I ever glad to see you? You know, I am an animator. I do animations for a living, but this is my first time being animated. Damn fine animations, too. I steal, reference, uh, borrow clips from your Stated Clearly channel all the time. One of the best science channels on YouTube. I didn't know we had a common interest until your second channel started exploring the science of Ken Ham's Ark Encounter. So, so good. I could use your help today, John. What do you say? Up for a ham sandwich? Yeah, I'd love to. Somebody here that said when they watch watch uh, some of these documentaries on TV, they feel like throwing something at the TV. I suppose I could relate to that. If you were from that worldview, it would be frustrating to see evolution everywhere, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I could see that. Poor Ken. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. For the most part. If you're watching any documentary, it's talking about evolution. If you're watching most movies, they accept evolution in the storyline. You know, Ken Ham's got this arc and the Creation Museum. And these are huge. Like when I went to the Creation Museum, it was actually pretty crowded. There was not a whole lot of elbow room the days that I was there. I mean, there are a lot of creationists in the world, but it really is, I think, kind of on its last leg. At least it feels that way to me. I mean, the types of interactions that I get with people on YouTube, they're just really angry. There's very little intellectual discourse coming from the creationist movement. It's really mostly just anger at this point that, that I see in my work. The creationists are angry? I get people that are really upset. I don't get death threats, but I get death wishes <laughs> fairly often from creationists and from alien people <laughs> because I do work for NASA. Well, if you work for NASA, you're obviously spewing round Earth propaganda as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like the really hard young Earth creationist movement is dying. I mean, we're starting to see that a little bit in the statistics, but there is a huge healthy chunk of the population that is still totally in that. Which is one of the reasons that I love what you're doing so much, because a lot of scientists don't have time to deal with this, obviously. They're actually doing real science work. Science communicators are the ones that have to deal with this, really. And having someone like you, who's been in it, and now come out, that's really powerful. Thanks, John. I was at the Creation Museum last summer, too. But it was completely empty the day I was there. I spent two whole days there, so I could see everything. And then I met with Nathaniel Jensen and spent like three hours hanging out with him. He's the Harvard-trained geneticist that works there. Good old Nathaniel. I'm reading his Replacing Darwin book. Yeah, I read that book before I met him. 
He's really interesting in that. So people have been asking me, sorry, this is, we're getting way off topic here, but people have been asking me if I think that Ken Ham is sincere or if he's just swindling people for money. I think he sincerely believes that if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you will burn in hell. And I think that he sincerely believes that evolution makes people reject Jesus. So I think he honestly believes that evolution is evil and needs to be attacked. And he's the type of personality that's, <laughs> I don't know, I kind of liken him to like Donald Trump or someone who just wants to be right all the time and doesn't mind failing to fact check <laughs> what he's saying. He's the type of personality that's inclined to lie about things. Nathaniel Jensen is different in that he believes those same things, but instead of that motivating him to lie to people, it's motivating him to desperately try to find evidence for creationism that he can convince the scientific community is legitimate. What Ken Ham is doing when he lies about things, he's, he's obviously lying about things. I think he's probably ignorant in most cases, but in some cases he's, he's definitely misleading his own audience. And I think that he justifies that for the same reason you might justify lying to a Nazi, right? To save your Jewish neighbors, because he thinks that people will burn in hell forever if they succumb to evolution. Lying for Jesus. What are your thoughts on BioLogos? I'm curious. I try to use BioLogos resources and references in my videos whenever I can. Because when a theistic evolutionist is speaking, it disarms the whole accusation that the scientists hold the position only because they hate God or want to sin. It's funny though, I agree with BioLogos on science, but not on theology. Yeah, I haven't read any of their theology stuff. I've just read their genetics stuff and their evolution stuff, and it's all totally accurate, which is what I love about BioLogos. They don't compromise any of their research that I've seen. BioLogos is trying to have a conversation about how it is that we can accept the science while also maintaining our faith. You know, if you were to treat your religion sort of like we treat science, which is, oh, sometimes we just don't know the answer and that's fine. <laughs> that to me is a really good way to go. Ken Ham sells certainty and people love that, but it's insincere. You can't be certain about these things and also be intellectually honest or honest with yourself. That's what I really like about BioLogos is that they're trying to be sincere from what I've seen. I've noticed the shift in answers in Genesis that they're much harsher on Christian organizations like BioLogos than they are on atheists. They're expanding their us versus them persecution narrative to include most people in the church as enemies of the AIG mission. Yeah, Nathaniel Jensen told me he sees BioLogos as more of a threat than the atheist community because he thinks that they're uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. And I'm sure it helps them sell more books. Should we see if we can get to the first news story? Yeah, 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 let's do it. All right, Dinosaur Party. This comes from Baptist Press. Dinosaur Party or Evidence of the Flood. And a uh, general gist of this is they find uh, a bunch of fossil evidence of dinosaurs and mammals, uh, in particularly a lot of their footprints right there together. This kind of surprises the world. You know, he probably is right when he says that this surprises the world, that there was mammals living alongside dinosaurs, because most people learn about dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. <laughs> I just find it interesting that they're presenting this find of mammal prints alongside dinosaurs as some sort of earth-shattering thing because we've known that mammals lived along dinosaurs forever. I mean, in fact, mammals got their start before dinosaurs even existed if you go back to the synapsid split. So mammals got their start, uh, the fossils show that they split from early amniotes. Amniotes gave rise to reptiles, things like dinosaurs, lizards, and they also gave rise to mammals. And that split between the reptile group and the mammal group, that occurred over 300 million years ago. Those early proto-mammals, they didn't look very much like mammals. They're things like Demetrodon. 
Dimetrodon was a proto-mammal. They were part of a group that eventually gave rise to mammals. And so that started about 300 million years ago. And then you get big critters that you would be tempted to call a mammal if you saw one about 270 million years ago. These are things like Gorgonopsids. And they have, we think that some of them probably had fur because we find scat that appears to have fur in it. And their teeth were very mammal-like. They had these big kind of saber-toothed cat-looking teeth. Again, those were 270 million years ago, and that was before dinosaurs existed. Then you have this huge extinction at the end of the Permian, and that killed off, that was bigger than the extinction that killed off the dinosaurs. That killed off almost everything on the planet. And from that, you had archosaurs, which were these proto-dinosaurs that took off after that extinction and kind of took over. And the only mammals that you have that survived that were really small. We just find really small mammals in the fossil record after that Permian extinction. And these small mammals were living underneath the dinosaurs. They were, a lot of them we think were nocturnal. The largest that we found is about the size of a beaver, but most everything is the size of a rat or something like that. So there were tons of mammals alongside the dinosaurs. Some of them were even rodent-like. They were not rodents. They weren't even placental mammals. But there was a huge diversity of mammals evolving right alongside the dinosaurs. They were just, for the most part, small. Here are some of the animals that, according to evolutionists, are in evolutionary, uh, in dinosaur age rock. Mm -hmm. They live with dinosaurs, according to evolutionists, but they live today with people. Rabbits, squirrels, hedgehogs, beavers, possums, shrews, parrots, owls, penguins, flamingos, albatross, ducks, cormorants, sandpipers, loons, frogs, salamanders, box turtles, boa constrictors, iguanas, lizards, alligators, crocodiles, lobsters, crayfish, eels, sharks, sardines, dragonflies, beetles, mayflies, crickets, cockroaches, butterflies. That's Wait a minute. some of it. <laughs> that, and that's just some of them yeah. that live with dinosaurs, according to evolutionists. They live today and they live with people, and yet, it's so stupid to believe people live with dinosaurs. There's a lot of confusion in that spewing forth of words there. First, he's actually just factually wrong on a lot of those things that he said lived along with dinosaurs. There were no beavers. There were no squirrels. There were no parrots. A huge chunk of that list is just false. The way that evolution works is a species will evolve, and if it's doing well, it's going to stay there until it goes extinct, or the environment changes so much that it has to adapt. It has to change. Have you read much about punctuated equilibrium? I'm generally aware that it's an observation that some organisms stay the same for a long time, but punctuated with periods of relatively rapid changes, where rapid still generally means millions of years. There's actually multiple reasons why species will stay stable for a long period of time, and there's multiple reasons why they can rapidly change. One of the reasons that a species will stay the same is because the population gets so big and is spread across multiple microenvironments that any adaptation that's helpful in one specific microenvironment ends up being drowned out by gene flow because you've got a really big population. Like let's say that for the most part your species lives in the desert, but there's a small chunk of you that live in a wetter climate. Every time you start adapting towards that wetter climate, some outsider comes in, starts breeding in that community, and those desert adapted genes get bred back into that community. It's really difficult for evolutionary change to happen when a population gets to a certain size, if there's good solid gene flow throughout the entire population. That will halt adaptive evolution. During all that time, new genetic material is evolving. So genetic diversity is increasing dramatically, but it's not being selected for in any sort of directional way, so you don't see it in any individual. You know, elephants right now are adapted for drier climates, right? I mean, you've got some rainforest elephants, but the African elephants have evolved for living in fairly dry climates in Africa, and all species of elephant alive today are adapted for warmer climates. 
But there are elephants that are hairier than others. There are elephants with more body fat than others. There are elephants with smaller ears than others. These are all traits individually that would help an elephant withstand colder temperatures. And you could easily see that if the climate were to change and rapidly cool down, all of the different individuals that have these different traits, the thick fur trait, so you know, more density per square inch of the elephant's body, more body fat in the skin, smaller ears, all of these things, these different traits that currently exist in different individuals, so we don't see anything extreme whenever we look at an elephant, all of those traits would eventually get bred into one small group which would end up with all of those traits. And so you would see rapid evolution as soon as you see the climate change. But that's really just happening because all of these traits are getting bred into one small group. But those traits already existed in the larger population. So when we look at T-Rex fossils, for example, for millions of years, they look pretty much the same. They'll change in size a little bit. They'll change in a little bit in the shape of the skull. But for the most part, they look the same. That's very common in the fossil record we see stability of species until the climate changes or a new predator is introduced to their ecosystem and they have to rapidly change to adapt to that. So things will stay the same until something makes them change. The reason that we think it's silly that dinosaurs lived along with humans is not because the idea that dinosaurs could have survived till now is impossible. It's, it's not impossible. Dinosaurs happen to have gone extinct at the end of the Cretaceous they disappear from the fossil record. That's why we think it's weird that dinosaurs would live along with humans because dinosaurs went extinct in the Cretaceous period. We only have fossils of modern humans that date back to 350,000 years. And even those ones are a little bit disputed. We're not totally sure if they're modern humans. The really solid ones go back about 200,000 years. So that's really recent. That's why it's crazy to think that dinosaurs and humans lived alongside each other. Yes, dinosaurs lived with mammals, but they did not live with humans. Footprints get obliterated after just a few hours of exposure unless sediment quickly covers them. And the conditions of the flood make perfect sense to form fossils uh, of these footprints. Floods are actually good things for preserving fossils. In order to preserve footprints like this, a flood alone wouldn't do it. You need like a mudslide. You need rapid sediment. You could also have a dust storm that could do that. You could have a volcano that could do that. AIG likes to perpetuate the misconception that secular science says fossils take millions of years to form because somehow they're waiting for individual grains of sand to eventually accumulate. That paints a silly picture that I used to believe. But would mainstream science disagree with answers in Genesis here that fossils can happen only with rapid burial? No, no, that's true. For the most part, that's true. Rapid burial is extremely important. Unless you have things that are just really hard, that just don't decompose, they do need to be buried fairly quickly, especially if you're going to get like soft tissue and stuff. I've got a video on this on the Stated Casually channel where I talk about Lagerstätten. Have you seen that? I did. The second one in your Ark Encounter series. So in that video, I talk about the different ways that fossils form. And the most important fossil beds are what we call Lagerstätten. These are little micro-catastrophes that rapidly buried everything in that region. So we've got volcanoes that can do this. You have a beautiful fossil bed in Nebraska. It's ashfall, I believe is what it's called, where there was a volcano that spit out just really fine ash that suffocated everything in the region. I can't remember the time period that it is, but it's after the extinction of the dinosaurs. It's only mammals in this region. You have like rhinoceros and other really cool things that were there. They all suffocated from this ash and then died, and the ash continued to fall after they died, and everything was buried. And because the ash was so light, their skeletons are very three-dimensional still. They're not very smashed. 
You know, a lot of times you find fossils that are just completely flattened by the heavy sediments on top of them. The Lagerstätten in Germany that Archaeopteryx was found in, those were formed in a lagoon that formed a trap. These lagoons were forming and they would become extremely salty as the water evaporated and things would fall into them and just get pickled in the brine. They weren't rapidly buried, but they were rapidly pickled, <laughs> rapidly preserved. And the water was so toxic that any predator or scavengers that would try and go in there would also die. So nothing picked them apart. And then you have slow sedimentation on top of them after they've been pickled. The tar pits in L.A. are another really good example of a Lagerstätten where you have a death trap that forms and keeps on killing these animals. It's a really neat one because if a large buffalo or mastodon would get stuck in there, they would start to freak out and they would attract predators from all over the place. So we actually have way more predators than we have herbivores in this particular fossil bed because they attracted so many dire wolves and so many saber-toothed cats. That's really cool. You never see that. You always see more herbivores than you see carnivores because that's how the food chain works. But because they were acting like a beacon, calling all these predators in from all over the place and everybody would die together (laughs) in the tar. It's this horrible, dirty trick that nature was playing on predators at the time. So we have all these really neat fossil formations where it really does take a rapid burial. It takes a catastrophe to get really good fossil preservation. That's dust storms, mudslides, volcanoes. A lot of the information that creationists are saying is censored from the culture, actually, mm-hmm. so, which is uh, very, very sad. When he says that creationism is censored from the culture, obviously it's not censored from the culture at large. The claims that creationists make aren't accepted in the scientific literature because they're not legitimate scientific claims. Have you ever heard the saying, nullius in verba? I have not. That is the motto of the Royal Society, the oldest living scientific organization. That was their motto, nullius in verba, which means take no one's word. That was their motto because in their community, they would get together and they would take observations that they were gathering and they would try to come up with explanations. What what do these facts mean? What, What can this tell us? And they had to demonstrate everything to the other people in the group so that nobody had to trust anybody else. This is really the basis of a scientific paper today. You have data and then you make arguments from that data. Science is the collection of observations and an ongoing conversation about what those observations might mean. Creationists aren't doing that. They're doing a completely different thing. They're looking at the Bible as their facts, as their observations. They're observing quotes in the Bible and saying, what might those mean? That's a different activity from science. That's theology. So I guess you could say it's censored, but it's not censored. It's just the wrong genre. You know, it's the same reason you don't put Disney cartoons in, you know. In the State of the Union address. Yeah, yeah. It's not science. So it doesn't go in a scientific journal. It's a theological argument. It belongs in a theological journal. I mean, I'm sure there are such things. They say we evolved from ape-like creatures. When you look in the evolutionary textbooks as to what that ape-like ancestor looked like, it looked like an ape. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here he says, what does their ape ancestor look like? It looks like an ape. Well, humans look like apes. (laughs) We are, in fact, classified scientifically as apes. In phylogeny, we have the hominid clade, and that clade is chimps, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, and humans. So we are all hominids. So the Planet of the Apes movies have been true all along. (laughs) Yes, this is the Planet of the Apes. Just happens to be that one species has dominated all the other ones. That's right. We're bad neighbors. Yeah, we're horrible neighbors. This came from BBC. Uh, Dinosaurs too successful for their own good. This is just another account uh, trying to state uh, what happened to the dinosaurs. Here's another one of their extinction theories. They are not saying that this is a different hypothesis for the extinction of the dinosaurs. 
What that article says is that the asteroid hit and dinosaurs went extinct. Why did dinosaurs go extinct from that asteroid when other things survived? And the answer is dinosaurs were actually fairly weak as a group before the asteroid hit. And that asteroid just finished them off. They were so successful they died out. That's the argument. You know, they were so successful they died out. Evolutionist logic is incredible. It, what this hypothesis is trying to explain is in North America, and I should be specific, it was, it's really only in North America that we see this, dinosaurs dramatically decrease in diversity in the few millions of years leading up to the Great Extinction. There's a bunch of large predators in North America that we see in the fossil record, but leading up to the Cretaceous extinction, T-Rex takes over, and T-Rex dominates. There are no other large predators. It's just T-Rex. There's a bunch of ceratopsids earlier on in the Cretaceous, but towards the end, there's pretty much just triceratops. One of the ideas is that they were getting messed up. Their populations were tattered by sea level changes. There were rapid fluctuations in sea level at that time when we start to see the decrease in dinosaur species. Some people are saying maybe there was some sort of a disease or fungus that happened. We just don't really know. And the the other idea is that Triceratops and T-Rex, we see them dominate. We see them replace all of the like-bodied creatures in their ecosystems. It might have just been that Triceratops was super successful. It might have just been that T-Rex was super successful and outcompeted all of its competition. And because of that, when the asteroid hit, there was not very much biodiversity. There was not much hope for the dinosaurs to survive that hit. So that's what this article is explaining. A few small groups of dinosaurs dominated the entire population, the entire ecosystem. And because there were so few species left when that asteroid hit, There was no one that happened to have the adaptations that allowed them to survive that sudden change in ecosystem. At the end of this whole article, it says, but not all researchers are convinced. See, you Mm -hmm. just hear all these different stories. They have all these different beliefs. They come up with all these different ideas. Mm -hmm. They have no idea because they totally reject the Bible, reject the flood. They reject God's word, and so they they can't figure it out. He's trying to mock science for what it is, like fundamentally what science is. Science is the collection and documentation of observations and then an ongoing conversation about how those observations can be best linked together. And so when you're looking at a mystery, scientists will begin to take whatever they can, whatever evidence they can, and they'll start piecing that into a picture for, you know, a hypothesis about what the heck was going on at that time. So paleontologists are collecting all the data they possibly can, and then they argue about it. That's what they do. That's their job. And to watch that process and pretend that it's some sort of a weakness, that these scientists don't know anything, that's absolutely disingenuous. He knows that that is. And the difference between science and what Ken Ham is selling, Ken Ham is selling absolute certainty. The false idea that you can know with certainty what happened in the past, what's going to happen in the future. There might be people that need that in their life, but I just feel like that's such a disingenuous way to go about exploring the world that you live in. Things are mysterious, and that's beautiful to me. One of the most difficult things I had to do coming out of religion was to become okay with the idea of, I don't know. Are there any things that you really miss from being religious? I miss having an invisible bodyguard who will help me find the remote when I pray about it. That was nice. (laughs) Mostly, I miss the friendships and the music. Fortunately, I've discovered that we have superior secular counterparts for those last two. A lot of things have better secular counterparts, but I don't think we have a really good secular counterpart for everything. I mean, religion works because it's giving people something that they value that they're not easily finding elsewhere. You know, Mormons take super good care of each other. Before the masses can really be comfortable stepping away from religious beliefs, I think there's needs that need to be met in the secular community that are not currently being met. It's not like you leave your religion and Richard Dawkins is waiting for you with a big hug, right? (laughs) 
I was fortunate to find a great secular group in my city that took me in and kept me connected. I'd encourage anyone to do a Google search or a Facebook search for secular or skeptic or atheist groups near them. Holy Kool-Aid has a good list on his website as well. If joining a secular group isn't your thing, I volunteer at a wildlife center. <laughs> you know, you might join a photography club or anything, you know. The community is really important to people, and that's the thing that I've missed most since leaving my religion. That's a little bit of an aside. But a good one. They were so successful they died out. Then the next article you read is, oh, dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid. Again, they are trying to say that the success hypothesis and the asteroid theory are in conflict with each other, but they are not. <laughs> they are absolutely not. The success hypothesis is how we explain the slow decrease of dino diversity in North America, and the asteroid is how we see the actual dinosaurs getting finished off. If they say an asteroid knocked out of the dinosaurs, why didn't it knock out all the other animals? Why did it kill everything else? I mean, that's a big problem, actually, in the model. He asks a good question, though. How is it that other creatures survived this catastrophe, but the dinosaurs died? And by dinosaurs, we mean non-avian dinosaurs, the big guys. That's actually a really good question. The question for most scientists isn't, why did other things survive? Everything got decimated during this asteroid hit. So what happened is the asteroid hit in Mexico, killed everything in that region, killed a lot of things in North America just from the impact itself. We now have this data saying that that also triggered volcanoes in India because of this hit. So you're having both sides of the world get just decimated by this one single event. But it doesn't kill everything. There's always going to be some sort of little microenvironment that's safe during a volcano. You know, some weird spot between two rocks or some weird little gully that everything survives in. So there's, of course, there's going to be pockets of life after this. But the worst thing about this is that there was a huge cloud that blocked out the sun on the entire planet. And we know this because there are asteroid sediments all around the globe. So this dust cloud must have engulfed the entire planet and blocked out the sun for maybe months at a time. That would have killed all of the plants that require constant sunlight in order to stay green, meaning there's no food <laughs> for anything that eats plants. What happened to all the other animals? Yeah, that's a good question. Anything that doesn't live off of roots or nuts, they're going to die. If you depend on green vegetation, you're, you're dead. So there would have been a ton of huge dead herbivorous dinosaurs all over the place that starved to death. And there would have been a ton of food for scavengers. So all of these meat-eating dinosaurs would have had a heyday for a couple of weeks, maybe. And then they would have started to die out as well. So smaller animals that can eat a variety of things or that have a slow metabolism. A lot of lizards and reptiles and crocodiles, they can go long periods of time without food. But most of these dinosaurs, we believe now, were most likely warm-blooded. They would have needed to eat a lot all the time. So these meat-eating dinosaurs, they would have died out because their food died. And then you also have this problem of snow and ice because the sun's blocked out. You're going to get cooling and possibly freezing of, you know, entire water systems. And there's a really neat video that I found. This year we had a huge unusual freeze in North Carolina and it froze over some lakes that alligators live in. Have you seen this? I have not. The alligators survived. They let themselves get completely frozen in the ice and they stuck their nose out of the top of the water and they just survived like that and they were fine. <laughs> like once the lakes thawed, they were just fine. You can freeze an alligator and it's cool with it. It just goes into hibernation, sticks its nose out of the ice, and it's good. So we have a bunch of weird animals that just happen to have strange adaptations that allow them to survive catastrophic climate changes. 
And the fact that large dinosaurs weren't able to do that, it's not that unusual. I mean, a lot of these mammals, they could dig. They could go hide underground. They could eat roots. They could eat nuts. Things that would not have disappeared during this catastrophe. Any reptile with a really slow metabolism that could just go without eating for a while, they could survive it. Any animals that could survive being frozen for a while, you know, there's a lot of frogs that can freeze. And then anything that could easily escape its local environment and look for a better spot to live. So anything that could fly, for example, could have survived this catastrophe. And so that's what we see in the fossil record. Paleontologists love to try and figure out the details, like why was this group able to survive? That's an ongoing discussion. The bigger mystery is why did all of the non-bird dinosaurs die? And that's the types of things that we're explaining with this hypothesis. I've heard some creationists claim that the KT boundary isn't from an asteroid at all, but from those India volcanoes you were talking about, all of which supposedly happened during the flood, of course. Yeah, when I was talking to Nathaniel, he said that all that stuff's up in the air as far as which layers were from the flood, which layers were from other events. He says there is some debate among the creationists as to what's going on there. I've lost track of which creationists think that the ice ages were real or Pangaea or continental drift and which ones deny them outright. It's interesting to me what things the creationists decide to accept and which things they decide to reject. Ken Ham has written brilliant stuff about the flat earth. They know how to think critically when it comes to that. When Answers in Genesis did their flat earth debunking show, I made a video replacing every time they said flat earth with young earth to illustrate their terrible double standards on evidence. One of my favorites. Right. <laughs> That's great. I'll have to watch that. That's, that sounds awesome. Speaking of awesome videos, John has two amazing channels that you need to subscribe to today if you haven't already. The first is called Stated Clearly. Good to its name, John posts videos designed to educate anyone who's new to the topics of genetics and evolution in the most entertaining and informative way possible. His second channel is called Stated Casually, which has other science topics that interest him, including creationism and an amazing series on the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter that you just have to watch. Much better than mine. I think what you're doing is important, and as many people as we can that are tackling this from different angles, it's so good. For this special group of people that are stuck in this, I have so much empathy for them. It's true. There's no one type of communication that's the magic bullet. There's no one piece of information that would have made me change my mind. It had to be a gradual erosion of facts and ideas, both subtle and in my face. And the people that are stuck in that are great. I mean, you know this. <laughs> it's your friends and family. And even, you know, what Nathaniel Jensen was a great guy, and I think he's a really smart guy. It's unfortunate that his brain is stuck in this because he's got a good brain otherwise. That does not come across in his book, but I'll take your word for it. I'm glad that you exist, that Biologos exists. Having lots of different personalities engaging in this is really important. Thanks, John. Paul, thanks for having me. It was fun talking about dinosaurs and some of Ken Ham's <laughs> nonsense there. Before you head over to Stated Clearly, please take a second to like this video, leave a comment, and subscribe if you haven't already, so you can be notified when new episodes of Ham and Egg News arrive. And hopefully soon, my series on the Genesis Paradise Lost movie. A huge thank you to all my Patreon supporters whose gracious support has meant much more than just the financials in the past few months. Thanks, guys. It's thanks to these people that I can move forward with more plans, more videos, and more opportunities to share good information with those who need it. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Until next time, later.